Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm John Purcell. I'm sitting here with Ben Hunter. And we're very happy to be across from Tony Kavanagh, who's coming to talk about Blood River, his new novel. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. Welcome, and I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for coming in. Now, um, you're not just an author. You've also had a rich career in um, film television um, as both a producer and a writer, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, where did it all begin for you? The writing novels? Yeah, sure. What did you want to go back to the beginning of film TV? <laughs> no, let's, let's not go to Perth. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just start with the, the, uh, the David Copperfield beginning. <laughs> well, the Shand. beginning of the film and TV career was actually shoveling shit on a film set in uh, in the 1970s. But you say shoveling shit, you mean literally shoveling shit? Yeah, literally shoveling shit. I'll tell this story very quickly because it's got nothing to do with books. But I was a kid, <laughs> I was 15 years old, my dad had hunted down Hector Crawford at a wedding in Ballarat. He said, my son, my dad sold cars. My granddad sold cars, Holden, so guess what I'm meant to be doing, but I didn't. I wanted to make movies, I wanted to be a director, I wanted to be David Lean. So my dad, bless his heart, kind of acceded to that and hunted down Hector Crawford in a car park at a wedding in Ballarat and said, my son wants to make movies, can you possibly get a job? Hector said yes. So I got a job working over Christmas on Matlock Police and it was an episode called Death Takes a Holiday and it was Michael Pate's last episode and the premise was that there were a couple of cattle duffers who'd stolen some cows and they were transporting or they were riding them across the mountain range. And the cops who were on horseback could only follow them by following the cow shit. So I arrived on set, literally I'm not making this up, I arrived on set and I was given a shovel by the first assistant director and he said, look, the next shot is a POV from Michael's perspective on the top of the, on top of the horse and he's going to be seeing the cow paddies, as, you know, and looking up into the mountain range, and they're up there. Get the cow paddies, do a line, that's it. Thanks, mate. That was the first time. <laughs> that was my first job. But you, but you kept going at Crawford's, and you actually wrote the last um, Sullivan's episode. Yeah, like yeah, that's a story too. We could, as I said, we could be here until next week, but I did. <laughs> I did. So Sullivan's was, was the show. Like, I mean, when I was growing up... Uh, Everyone stopped and just watched the Sullivans. It was the, the most dominant, dominating show that I can remember in that period. Yeah, well, after Matlock, I spent a little bit of time on Homicide, a little bit of time on Division Four, and then went back to went went to university. And after I finished that, Sullivans was on. It was massive, and I was lucky enough to get a job as a runner. And then I graduated to become the clay player. The guy goes, "Shot twenty two, take two, back." That was me, and I did that for about three years. And then I can tell you, there is only so long, so long. You can get up at four in the morning in Melbourne in winter and go to the Danning Nongs and schlep over the hills, slugs and leeches dropping on you, carrying camera gear as a clapper loader, which I did on the Sullivans. And after about three years, I've got to get out of this. I've got to get behind the desk. I want to become a trainee script editor. I want to learn how to write a story, which is actually, I guess, the the answer to your question, which is where I began as a writer, was that sort of determination just to learn how to tell stories. And so I became a trainee script editor on the Sullivan's, did that for a number of years, the Carson's Law. And Sullivan's was great. And then went on to do co-create The Flying Doctors, which was fantastic. And then travelled through that, created my own TV and film company. And then that was very successful. We did about 60 or 70 hours in Brisbane. We did a show called Fire and Adrenaline Junkies, Lindy Chamberlain miniseries. And at the end of that very successful run, back to your question, I had had a um, rather nasty fight with an American distributor over a movie, a movie that we had made. And it was 
at the end of that fight, which I won because I had creative control, at the end of that fight, I was completely burnt out. I was really fucked up. I'd been to rehab twice. I thought it was a really cool idea to drink a bottle of vodka every morning at 6 o'clock. I was smashing cars. I was lucky to be alive. And I thought... And then my marriage catastrophized, and I found myself in this grotty little motel room at the Mango Cove Resort in Labrador, and it's not a resort, I'm here to tell you folks. Uh, <laughs> and, and in the middle of all that, uh, out of that kind of dark, in that dark hole, I started to think, well, what have I got? I mean, there was a whole bunch of personal stuff going on, angry and all that sort of stuff. I, you know, let's just focus on the positive here. What, are, what do I, what's going to get me out of bed in the morning and make me feel good about myself? What can I actually do? Because I can't do very much. Uh, well, I can kind of tell a story and I can kind of write, even though I, I haven't done a lot of prose, but I can certainly write scripts. So I just started to put together snippets like, you know, the, there was a voice of this guy. He was really creepy. And he was killing these young women. Like, I'll leave him alone for a little while. I'll go back to this other guy. And this film that I mentioned before, I'd been working with a FBI-trained profiler and an ex-head of homicide. And the ex-head of homicide, Lee Chow Roberts, who I thank in my new book, Blood River, who's been very um, close to me and very influential in the journey of Blood River. Uh, I kind of amalgamated my character, Darian Richards, who was a burnt-out cop, not that they were, was a burnt-out cop who went to Noosa thinking, I've just got to get away from Melbourne, I've got to get away from my life of having nightmares about serial killers, killers, my life of murder. And I'm just going to go up to the Noosa River and lie in a hammock and listen to Led Zeppelin and cook chilli crap. He gets there, and what he didn't know, of course, was there was a serial killer, and he knows... The local cops can't handle that. He needs to deal with it. He comes out of retirement with express express intention of fighting the serial killer, which is very hard to do, and then killing him, putting him in the ground, and returning back to the hammock to listen to Led Zeppelin again. So that was... And that kind of... As with all of my books, I have some vague idea of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, but I don't really know how I'm going to get to those two words. I didn't realise you're not meant to put those two words until quite recently, the end. You do that in the script, but you don't do that in a novel. It's only last year. I was so new at this game. It was only last year when I... Actually, I don't think I've ever read a book that's got the end at the end of it. So I thought, no, right, okay. So I, but I still always do it because it makes me feel, feel happy. So <laughs> That was the promise. The, the f- that was the first book, yeah, promise, promise, yeah. yeah. And that was the one that was... Um, France and translated into French and German. Yeah, so in France, the first the first book to be translated into French was Kingdom of the Strong. Oh right, and which is the fourth book, and then the second book was Promise, which is the first book, and then the third book is uh, what they call Requiem, which is Dead Girl Sing, which is what I've been over there for, which is the second book. That's madness. Translation, crazy. (laughs) Well, no one seems to mind, and I was very alert to while I was writing. Obviously, I'm a writer. I'm working to my, you know, creative desires in terms of theme, in terms of character, in terms of narrative. But at the same time, I've been a producer since, you know, since I did The Flying Doctors in the mid-'80s. So, you know, over there, is there, there is that sense of, um, you know, marketability. How do you actually, you know, it's one thing to write a book, it's one thing to make a TV show, it's one thing to make a film, but you've actually got to do the next step, which is to reach out to find your audience. So I was very aware of that. So um, 
in that case, I made sure that all those books, those four books, were kind of standalones. Yeah, because I mean, the, the character of Darian has been um, uh, associated with Rebus and, and um, Harry Bosch as a, as a strong, yeah. central character yeah. that carries carries these novels. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. so, but Darren isn't in this new book. No, I'm happy, you know, I love Darren. He's great. He's currently up on the north coast on the highway up near Cairns. He's about to turn left and meet some nasty people. But he's been up there for a little while. And I'm not quite sure when he's turning left <laughs> because I've fallen in love with a couple of other, <laughs> other people. So this book is very different because... Uh, and Darren is kind of an aberration for me, really, because the first film I wrote was was called Father with Max von Sydow and Carol Drinkwater. And it was with the point of view of a daughter whose father is, is accused of being a Nazi war criminal. So it's all from a female perspective. And the accuser is another woman. So it's about two women. And indeed, in The Flying Doctors, our main focus was women. And most of my shows have been about women fire. It's about the first female firefighter in Queensland. Through my eyes, about Lindy Chamberlain. So I've always felt very comfortable, for whatever reason, writing from a female perspective. So when I was writing Darian, he was unusual for me to be writing such a muscular character. I mean, I loved him. It was great. And I was working to, I was saying before, you know, my dad used to read me this sort of stuff. You know, I read Mickey Spillane and Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, of course, Sherlock Holmes and all those sorts of, those sorts of um, authors and characters, roughly since I was a little kid, you know, eight or nine years old. So I was, understood that world. But in this new book, I felt much more comfortable working, one, with a female police officer, Lara, and two because I've spent the past three or four years working in China, developing a number of film and TV projects for China to be shot in Mandarin, working to that audience with an understanding of the Confucian and Maoist approaches to storytelling and also the culture over there, which is very, obviously, just to be obvious, uh, very different. And having formed a film company of three young Chinese women, Chinese Australian women, I became fascinated by that world. And so... Lara is a kind of really interesting character for me. I love it. She's the youngest police officer, uh, youngest police officer in homicide in 1999. She's paired up with the oldest. And there's a chapter in the book where he was the youngest back in 1964. So there's a parallel between them. And she's Asian Australian. And so she has uh, guilt all the way through from not being a good filial daughter. And as she says in one of the passages in the book, I know it's ridiculous. You know, my friends, my girlfriends, all of whom are completely Anglo, they don't get it when I say that my mum is on my back about being married before I'm 30. They just think it's a joke. Well, But more than that, they don't get that I find it's really a problem because if I don't do what my mum says, I've failed. She's failed. Yeah. Actually. And if she's failed, she'll go to her grave. A failure. And there's a passage in the book towards the end, a chapter in the book where he says, I'm really sorry I failed you, Mum. I'm yeah. really sorry. But, you know, now I'm the police commissioner. Is that good enough? Hey, look, I can write in Mandarin. Is that good enough? So I was really interested in I love Lara. She's fascinating. She's paired up with a guy who's based on, a, on an interesting character I met in Thailand um, who's an old, still alive, mid-'80s, late-'80s, ex-gangster, and he grew up in the East End, and so a lot of Billy's attitudes and stories are, in, uh, are connected to Lara and come from, come from true life as well. And, and this is a... Because you, you said about the company, is this a break? How long was it between the last novel you wrote and this novel? 
Like, do you, yeah. what, what do you feel yourself as? Like, what's your... What's... Ah, look, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I wanted to be a director. I'm a little really weird kid. So when I was six, mum said, what do you want to do for your birthday party time? I said, I want to take all the kids and we're going to go down to the Astor City and we're going to watch Lawrence of Arabia. So okay. So Lawrence of Arabia is a long film. Mm-hmm. It's a good three hours. And if you're six years old, it kind of, I loved it. I heard Mackenzie loved it. <laughs> and I looked at that and I thought, I want to be a film director. You know, I was telling you before about the cast and the Holdens and Dad and Grandpa and all that sort of stuff. I want to be a film director. And the choice to become, to leave the film crew and to become a trainee script editor and then a story editor and then a screenwriter was all with the direction of becoming a, a film director. And at a certain point, when I was in Brisbane, I don't know, we were doing Medivac or we were doing whatever we were doing. We were doing something. And I had by then become, to all intents and purposes, a reasonably successful producer and screenwriter. I had a company we made, you know, made tens of millions of dollars worth of production. And I kind of went for a stroll in the park one day in one of those very few moments I have of self-reflection. So I just kind of like go off whatever. And I thought, you never achieved what you wanted. You wanted to become a film director and you haven't got there and does that bother you kinda kinda because if i set my if i set my intentions on something i'd like to kind of reach it and i kept wandering around the park and i decided that i recalibrated and thought oh you were wrong back then when you said you want to be a film director you didn't actually what you really want to be and what you've actually been successful as is a storyteller so I consider myself a storyteller. I don't care what space I'm in, and I don't actually draw much of a distinction between writing a novel, telling a story in, in that format, or doing an eight-part TV series, or doing a series of 10-minute you know, dramas for Instagram, or doing a huge film that's going to be shot in Mandarin. I'll sit in the opening night and won't understand a bloody word of it, even though I've written the original script. I don't care because I'm just telling stories, and I feel very comfortable as I did in that day, I thought, you don't have to consider yourself a loser anymore, time. You've just figured out what it is that you actually were good at and are good at. So, yeah. So this novel writing gig that is part of this storytelling <laughs> part, um, it, novels take uh, a long time and are generally quite isolating. And you're, if you're working with people and you're a people person, it's obviously you're a people person. What is it like going into that, that space to sit down when you've got an idea, the idea's there or a character's there or something that is burning there and having to just... Because it takes months. <laughs> yeah, well, Blood River took a year and a half. Yeah. Um, it's a lot longer than the others. I have no problem, actually, for whatever reason, from flipping from one space to another space. Like, I've got... In my film company, I've got 14 different projects and I can jump from working intensely on the storyline of one to putting together a pitch doc for another and then having a Skype with the research. So were you doing all that and doing the novel? Well, when I got the phone call from Hachette, no, I wasn't. I had... I was working with one of my partners. We were working on one project and it was kind of a bit vague. But then, and I said, yeah, look, I'd love to write a new book. And, yeah, it doesn't have to be a Darian book. And, yeah, I've got an idea about, about a young woman who's accused of a bunch of murders and she goes to jail for life. This is the whole premise of the book, which is why I wrote it. I'll come back to the answer. Um, you know, life is not life. 
you got life imprisonment, but it's actually only 20 years or 15 years. And so she goes into jail thinking at the age of 18 and comes out at the age of 40. And while she's in jail, she's, how long is life? What will I get? And how do I get out? Um, while I was, so I'd started writing it, then I moved to Sydney. And then it so happened, I formed a joint venture with Beyond, who I had a joint venture with in the early 90s. So all the TV I did in Brisbane was through Beyond. In that joint venture, a different joint venture. And so I'm half, not even halfway, I've started, written about the first however many chapters of my book, and now I've got a new film company. So, and, and Michael, I hope you're not watching. Um, so I had to, you know, spend a lot of time working on the book. Luckily, I get up at three or four in the morning, so I spend, and I have a long day. So I did a lot of writing on the book. And you just have to, you just have to, it's, look, it's time. At the end of the day, it's, it's, it's time management. And there were this, is this a quieter, is this part of like almost like a meditation part of your day? If, if your day is that crazy, having those, those hours in the early morning to, to write, is that where, where the peace comes? Or? Yeah, largely. Yeah. Largely, because it is, it's very quiet. No one's going to call you. Not no. that I ask the phone anyway, but no one's going to, no one's going to call you. It's just get for me getting up three or four in the morning. Not so much in winter; winter's approaching. It's kind of like I need to be in bed a little longer. But um, yeah, it's it's that tranquility before anyone else is up mm. that you can think, have some clean time to do your thinking, and also to strategize to think because you know it's important for me. If I've got a film company, fourteen projects, and I'm writing a novel, and now you know I've just come back from France for two weeks. And now I'm talking to you guys and, you know, I'm going to go back and I've got a whole bunch of emails and things to do. With the film company, it's the strategizing so I don't start to fret that I'm neglecting, you know, John Misto or one of my other wonderful writers that I'm working with as a producer and that I'm balancing everything. Yeah. Yeah, because we get a lot of people listening to this who are um, proto-writers, emerging writers, um, even just normal writers uh, who are always <laughs> trying to find the trick you know uh, the, the, the kind of how, how we're doing this and also they listen you know, I, I feel when I'm talking to writers I feel a little bit easier about my approach as, as a writer so you know this this kind of snatching time and work actually gets done uh, a lot of people well, think that they sit down and within two weeks they'll have a big pile and they'll feel much better about it but you can actually write these things write, write a full novel in these yeah. Look, there's no trick, mm. you know, and I can, I'll answer, I'll respond to that not so much as an author, but as a producer, as a story editor, because I've worked with hundreds of writers. Mm. You know, my very first job as a script editor, my the writer who I was working with, she'd written a terrific script. She used to be a script editor. It was her first script, and I knew she was going to be very sensitive. And I said to her, took her down into a back room, and I was aware of the sensitivities of it. That she never had criticism. As a writer, she'd given a lot of criticism as a script editor, and I said to her, hey, look, script is great. wasn't. Well, you've got to say that. That's important. Script is great, but as soon as I said, but, she my big mistake, she burst into tears, crushed a polystyrene cup, and I thought, shit, this is going to be difficult. So from that point on, I've spent a lot of time working with writers, and there is no golden rule, you know. I think Stephen King says you've got to write 3,000 words a day. Ray Bradbury says you've got to write 1,000 words a day. Stephen King writes in the morning, closes and finishes up at lunchtime. 
Doug Preston says, as long as I get one hour done, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The only, there are two rules, and they both come from Stephen King. Two rules. And it doesn't matter where the fuck you do them. Right. That's it. Right. <laughs> That's the first rule. And you can do it in the pizza joint. You can do it in the toilet. You can do it at three in the morning. Whatever. You can do it where you're having your lasagna over dinner. Right. And the other rule is read. And you've got to keep being... And the other, the other rules are just what I want to roll. You know, you've got to be relentless. You've got to be passionate. You've got to just roll with the rejections. The first time I got rejected, I would have been about 18 or 19. It was the outline for the script, which ended up being made into the film Father. And I went to Screen Victoria when I was a kid. And I was after some script development money. And there was a panel of three people. And they said to me, Tom, we've read your outline. We don't like it. I think, shit. And it was, that's what they said. And we want to do, you know, what is this about Nazi war criminals? Just 86 or something. What do we want to do about Nazi war criminals and women who are distressed about whether or not their fathers know it? We want to explore, you know, grungy Fitzroy. You know, we want to see knifings in Fitzroy Gardens. That's what we want. That's a sort of... Anyway, it doesn't matter what they said. I burst into tears. That's what mattered. And I just started to cry. And sort of shuffled off and, you know, excused myself and went outside and stood outside in the footpath and thought, I don't think you can survive, Tone, if you're going to be weeping every time someone says they don't like what you have done. I don't think that's how it's going to work. Because I suspect rejection is going to be a familiar friend or enemy, whatever, that she or he, they're going to be with you on that whole journey. And so at that point, I thought, well... I'm right, they're wrong. I'm right, they're wrong. And I've always, you know, funny, I was on the cab on the way here from where I live in Five Dock, I mentioned where I was coming and the cab driver was really interested and we started to end up talking about the amount of rejections at some of the great, yeah. some of the great stories. Yeah. J.K. Rowling, Marlon Jones, and I've just been at, um, at uh, the Key to Polar and I was sitting next to one of the greatest writers ever read, uh, uh, Nicholas Nakok Dag. A Swedish guy who wrote The Wolf and the Watchman, and he was telling me he had 70 rejections. Mm. And you know, all of these, everybody, you just can't let that knock you back. You have to be relentless. I'm right, they, they're wrong. I'm right, they're wrong. When I teach, as I do, screenwriting to students, uh, you know, in their 20s, one of the very, well, actually, this is my final lesson. I've, I've gone through the whole process of character and theme and narrative and Made them watch old black and white films. Fuck, black and white, Jesus Christ. And all that sort of stuff. And at the, my last class is, right, no, none of your parents want you to be here, do they? They never wanted you to come to film school. They never wanted you to become a screenwriter. They want you to become a, a, a doctor or an architect or an engineer. Something that's kind of tangible. Something that doesn't rely on... Mm. I mean, you're terrified, aren't you? Okay, well, imagine this. You're at the bottom of a mountain. And that mountain, at the top of it, that's called success. And you just don't think there's any chance you'll get there. It's just impossible. Because here am I down at the bottom, 22 years old, whatever. Mum wants me to be whatever. Dad wants me to be that, sell cars. And I just think I will never reach that top. And what I say to him, and it's true. And it goes not only for screenwriters, it goes for anyone in the creative game. Anyone in the creative game. On the other side of that mountain, unseen, are tens or hundreds of thousands of people looking for you. 
looking for you because their job depends on it. You know, Hachette, if they don't publish any books, they go out of business. You know, 20th Century Fox, they don't make any movies, they go out of business. If Beyond doesn't get any projects coming in, if I as a producer, producer don't get ideas coming into me that I can develop, I'm out of business. I'm searching. Everyone's searching. So for all of you on down there, all you've got to do, you've got to be aware of them, but your job is to find them and to know that they'll reject you, a lot of them will, but someone's going to say, this is right for me. And you yeah. feel like that. Beautiful. Tony, thank you so much for coming in. I, I just want to keep asking you questions yeah, that's right. <laughs> about writing, but um, we've hit our, hit our um, end of the podcast time. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. It's been really fascinating. I love talking about writing and, and how it happens and, and, and for you to have so many different experiences from different angles. It's really interesting to talk to you. Thank yeah. you so much. My favourite story is um, I'd written a script about the first woman who travelled around the world on her own, a woman called Ida Pfeiffer, Austrian woman, and she went to Madagascar in the 1850s, which was then the most dangerous place on earth. And we'd managed over a lot of perseverance. We'd raised $10 million from an obscure Austrian banker. We had Susan Sarandon and we had Gerard Depardieu. And I finally arrived in America to try and attach the final $10 million or $20 million film. And was in a meeting with the head of production at Universal and he leant forward and he said, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was some kind of, what the fuck? And he said, I really fucking hate you. I said, right, okay. He said, I read your script and I love it. That's why I hate you. <laughs> he said, when I read a script and I know it's no good, it makes me feel good. I can throw it in the bin. I'm relieved. He said, when I read a script that I like, oh, it fucking bothers me because I just can't let it go. That's my favourite. <laughs> Tony, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, guys. Um, and you can get hold of Blood River at booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, Check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget, for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.